Do you really understand your patients, and more importantly their journey? Or do you have to make assumptions because you have limited time or budget? Introducing Weltigo, a digital-based research solution that gives you the ability to rapidly reach and survey patients and caregivers in less than four weeks in under $20,000. Weltigo helps you identify patient gaps, remove assumptions, and stay ahead of your competition. Reduce your reliance on globally sourced patient research and get insights specific to your country with Weltigo. Welcome back to another episode of the Aromo Digital Podcast. We're kicking off 2022 with another great guest, Dr. Myron Durchansky. Dr. Durchansky is the founder and president of Black Letter Group. Black Letter helps life science executives identify and operationalize innovation at the intersection of digital and pharma. If you're looking for practical and meaningful ways to operationalize innovation in your job or business, this is a great episode for you. With that, let's get into the episode. Thanks, Myron, for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great. And we know you've been working with a lot of different companies in the healthcare space. And this year and last year has been a groundbreaking uh, change in the way that we carry out our life retail, uh, the way that we order products, the way that we interact with brands and companies. And one thing that we're trying to do is get a sense of what the impacts have been on healthcare and specifically what the trends have been. And and we don't really get a look into some of the teams uh, in the variety that you do. So we wanted to bring you in and get a sense of what kind of trends and topics that people are talking about in the boardrooms of these uh, large pharmaceutical, biotech, and medical device companies. Happy to opine. I mean, one of the things we're seeing, and this started before 2020, even before COVID, is, is this mega trend of lower uh, R&D productivity, meaning it's, it's uh, taking longer, uh, it's costing more uh, to develop drugs and, and things are becoming more, more complex. You know, we went from large molecules to small molecules to biologics now to gene therapies, digital therapies. It's a lot of complexities and, and companies are, are, are struggling with, with, with that. And that's why there's really this, this push for tangible innovation. I forecast that we're going to continue to see a lot of M&A uh, kind of to fuel that inorganic growth in, in some of the, the bigger companies. Um, another thing I'm hearing uh, executives talk about is, is this focus on real world uh, evidence and real world uh, data. So um, obviously, you know, we're doing clinical trials, uh, but clinical trials is a bit of an artificial environment. And, and people are now starting to look uh, beyond the trial. How does uh, this medication impact the patient more holistically? How does it act in the wild, right? In, in kind of the, the real world and, and payers and insurers are actually starting to demand that kind of data. So there's push uh, for that, a lot of talk about that. Um, there's always, uh, I think this links to this R&D productivity issue. There's always this uh, push to, to become uh, more nimble, right? Um, a lot of my clients are thinking about how to restructure themselves from big departments to maybe smaller SWAT teams that are it can move faster, uh, almost like a smaller or, or mid-size um, company. So there's a lot of how do we structure uh, conversations happening. And then lastly, there's, uh, and we're seeing this across industries, I think it's called the, the great resignation, right? People kind of um, opting to, to, to leave. I, I think pharma has been affected disproportionately 
uh, with with that. Um, I'm seeing a lot of executives, you know, they wake up uh, one morning, they're 45 years old, they've got a title of director or, or, or VP. Uh, and, and one reason why they joined pharma and life sciences in general is to make an impact, is to help patients. And uh, they're just frustrated with, with a lot of the bureaucracy, uh, they see a lot of the red tape and, and a lot of them are, I would say, opting to, to kind of leave and, and sometimes start their own uh, shop or go to a startup or a mid-tier company where they feel they might have more impact. So uh, there's a lot of conversation around culture, around how do we retain um, our talent, especially post-COVID. Those are some of the things I'm hearing. And, and some of those um, like trends, especially with the last one you mentioned, is this something that kind of like a burning problem that needs to be addressed immediately or are these more long-term transition? Because these are pretty large companies. There's a lot of moving parts to adjusting. Is this kind of like a burning issue right now? De definitely. I mean, you have, especially when you have portfolios that are, for example, coming off patent, you have a lot of life cycle management initiatives happening to figure out, um, you know, we're going off patent in three years, what's what's going to happen? How do we uh, continue to, to innovate, look for other indication therapeutic areas, add digital to our mix? Uh, that's something we specialize in, the kind of intersection of digital and pharma. Um, so, so it's definitely, it's, it's a burning platform. It's also, I mean, the, the, the people, the culture is showing people are, are, are leaving, right. And, and it's becoming much harder to retain talent. I mean, I know there's a big problem in tech around programmers and front end and back enders. I mean, it's this, the same in pharma. We're seeing a bit of an exodus of, of talent, uh, migrating, uh, I would say to kind of smaller uh, companies and again, I, I I think it goes beyond Zoom fatigue and, and 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 you know a lot of the the kind of reasons we're seeing in the press. I really think that I know that that the clients that come and, and they work with me, they're just frustrated. They're like, listen, Myron, I've built a tremendous career. I've been doing this for twenty plus years, but I, I want to work on something that's impactful. Uh, and I'm so frustrated by us knowing what the answer is, knowing which areas we should think about. Um, and how to do it, but just like it takes me six months to get a meeting with with an executive, and and by that time our competitors are are are, are doing other things uh, and kind of leapfrogging us. So uh, that's definitely a burning uh, issue. So Myron, with some of the uh, the people that you talk to, what are they getting excited about? Yeah, I mean it's 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 a good question, and and it's so dependent on on who you chat with, right? Because I mean, as as, as you know, pharma is such a complex value chain. Um, anything from drug discovery to R and D to clinical trial, I mean, and manufacturing, uh, sales, marketing, it's just tremendous innovations are happening. Um, maybe the way I think about this is is some of the projects that I'm working on, uh, and, and some of the things that people are excited. Um, include uh, things like leveraging machine learning for drug discovery. So um, um, I'm kind of cautiously optimistic. You know, the jury's still out uh, around using AI to actually come up with a new target or a new molecular structure of, of a drug. I, last time I checked, there wasn't yet an approved drug that was born out of um, AI and machine learning, but I'm cautiously optimistic. And and, 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 and I do have some projects that clients kind of thinking through how do we operationalize that. Um, some other areas are uh, digital biomarkers. So uh, for, for decades, we've had uh, kind of traditional biomarkers like blood glucose, blood pressure. But as we're seeing more sensors, as we're seeing more use of smartphones, we track 
you know, thousands of, of, of different uh, things, both passively and actively, there is a focus on digital biomarkers. How can we um, use that data to predict, uh, to help inform diagnoses, uh, as well as uh, kind of pro prognosis as well. Uh, so pharma companies are thinking through digital biomarkers, and that leads to another area that it excites people, which uh, it's called the digital twin. This one's a bit further out, but the theory of the case is once we nail down digital biomarkers, we can actually rebuild can, uh, you know, as dig digital twin, right? And whether it's, that's going to be in the Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse or, or somewhere else, but you'll be able to have um, an artificial representation of yourself based on genetic uh, based on digital, based on other types of biomarkers, um, which, you know, there's a bunch of use cases there. So uh, folks are, are actively talking. There's quite a bit of industry consortiums happening um, around that concept, but uh, that's something that is on people's radar. Um, there's also a lot of excitements around digital therapeutics, essentially software um, as a medical device, uh, software as, as, as a treatment modality, whether it's an app or an app device combo. Um, and, and this is real. There, there are clinical trials happening. Uh, Europe is on the path of reimbursing a lot of these digital therapeutics. And, and as you can imagine, pharma is very interested in this because a lot of digital therapeutics might displace uh, traditional therapeutics. I mean, it's a a new class of, of therapy that's emerging right in front of our eyes. And there's a lot of uh, good and convincing clinical evidence that, that's emerging. So that's kind of on the radar. Uh, and, and lastly, and maybe this is something that's a little bit nascent, but definitely people are excited about is the use of a distributed ledger, uh, kind of blockchain technologies. Uh, it's, it's being used, I've had some projects uh, around supply chain management, vendor management, how do we kind of create a distributed a ledger to ensure we, we don't disrupt our, our supply chain, um, but we are actively seeing kind of uh, experiments and pilots around patient registries, especially around rare diseases and, and how we can use the blockchains to actually uh, identify uh, these, these hard to identify, hard to reach patients. So uh, that's something that's a bit uh, later on, but I'm cautiously optimistic. It's that, you know, in the next three to five years, we'll, we'll figure that out. Um, sorry if I threw a lot at you kind of in terms of tech, but those are some of the digital things that, you know, at least we're working uh, our clients through. These are all really cool things. And it, it's hard to imagine, you know, the larger pharmaceutical companies kind of driving these because it is something you would expect a small company who has a very unique culture, or maybe it's a small number of people working on it. So decisions can be made really quickly, flexible, nimble, all those kind of things. Are you seeing uh, like any examples of healthcare companies that are driving innovation and, and what size would you say they are? Are these guys pretty small or are these, are you seeing something from larger companies as well? You're right. And, and, and really it's, it's, it's a mixed bag. I know we, our clients are both kind of mid-tier kind of that one to $5 billion of annual revenues all the way to, to the big pharma. I would say that the kind of the, the mid-tier smaller ones uh, do tend to move faster um, and, and are happy, I would say, that sometimes to, to experiment more. Having said that, the bigger pharma companies, obviously they got the budgets, it might take a little longer, uh, but sometimes within those bigger companies, if you find that corporate, I call them kind of corporate pirates or, or kind of corporate rebels, these are the folks that, like I mentioned, they, maybe they're frustrated with the status quo um, and, and they're saying, look, let's, let's shake things up a bit. 
let's find one of these areas and really dedicate themselves to, to kind of moving the needle and, and impacting change. Uh, it's a bit of an uphill battle sometimes, uh, but that's what you need in the bigger pharma companies. You need somebody with that mindset that's not afraid to, to kind of uh, step on some toes and, 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 and shake things up and is fairly courageous. The smaller ones, you kind of sometimes you often need a little bit less buy-in because, again, it's, I often work there either with the CEO um, or, or kind of some sort of senior VP where they are the decision maker. Um, but uh, change is happening uh, across across the board. Uh, and, and I would say that both smaller and, and, and larger players are, are kind of trying to, to figure out how to operationalize this, each with their unique set of challenges. So one of the things that we hear all the time is innovation. And, you know, we know that innovation sometimes can organically sort of bubble up in parts of the organization. Rather than hoping for it to show up, you know, what are some of the ways you can operationalize innovation? I kind of think of innovation uh, as a as tradecraft, right? I mean, you wouldn't uh, walk up to anybody in the company and ask them to build your discounted cash flow model or a go-to-market launch strategy. Uh, it's 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 a set. It's it's a process. It's a set of tools. Um, and, and I think just recognizing that, that, you know, having, let's say open concept work environments or ping pong tables or glass walls that you can kind of write on is just not going to help you bubble up innovation or organically. It's, 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 uh, it's a set of tools that some, some better than others, uh, kind of, kind of work in the corporate setting and, and look, corporate innovation is extremely difficult. It's, it's not an easy task. I think that. One of the things that I'm seeing is a lot of emphasis on generating ideas. So then sometimes bringing in external consultants, running uh, week-long workshops, lots of sticky notes everywhere. Um, the challenge there is that, from my experience, having an idea is maybe 10% of, of the world of innovation, right? And because and typically what happens is you have these amazing workshops, great energies, prioritized ideas and concepts. And then Monday morning comes and it's 9 a.m. And, and you got about 20 things to do. And, and, and these ideas that you worked on last week are priority number 29. So uh, the, the question is, how do you operationalize innovation beyond coming up with, with ideas? And a lot of clients come to me and they're like, look, Myron, we kind of know the answer. We have ideas. Um, help us figure out how to actually operationalize this. And the success that I've seen are companies that realize that innovation is less a technology game. Um, it's less an idea game. It's more of a people game. Um, the successful corporate innovators uh, that I worked with uh, understand that they need to figure out who the stakeholders are, who are the decision makers within the corporation, who holds the budget, what are their competing priorities and interests, what are some of the barriers, some of the enablers of these individual uh, folks. Uh, it's, it's funny, I was reflecting on this yesterday that a lot of uh, the successful projects that we ran were initially in stealth mode. They were under the radar. I mean, these were not uh, projects with a steering committee and a 20-person working group. I mean, this was us coming in with maybe two or three other uh, kind of corporate rebels and, and, and just getting things done. And at some point, we then went and we engaged a broader organization. So there is, there is a method, I think, how to operationalize. But I think realizing that you need to activate people, uh, you need to have a stakeholder engagement plan, that's just as important as having, having an idea.
for people who are on the leadership team, what would you say, like if they're trying to, um, they might be looking inwards and they might realize, okay, maybe we don't have, or we can't find that innovation within us. And maybe it's something that we're working on, but right now for the immediate term, how do you tap into the outside world, the external uh, sources for innovation? I think there was a quote, uh, somebody once said that uh, the most brilliant people in the world are probably not working for your company. Um, so, so, so there is a, a kind of increasing recognition that we need to look beyond the four walls of, of our company. Typically, it starts with, hey, we have this problem. I mean, sometimes we have projects where clients come to us and say, look, we're looking for this specific technology. Um, go and figure out, uh, you know, does, does this technology, does these teams, companies exist in places like Israel, like Singapore, like Silicon Valley. But other times, clients come to us and say, look, we have a certain problem. Um, less less about a technology, it's more about a customer patient patient challenge. So I think that one way to 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 think about that is that there's the traditional sources. So going to conferences, doing kind of scientific lit reviews, uh, personal connections. There are databases like uh, Crunchbase, like PitchBook. Uh, I kind of see this a bit of like an, an iceberg. Those are the kind of the the tip of of the iceberg, and that's what everybody's doing. Right. So going to conferences, uh, once a company gets on a database like like Crunchbase, like, like PitchBook, um, both you and 40 of your competitors know about it. So the tradecraft is how do we find those companies that might not be on a database? Uh, and that's where leveraging relationships like places like, for example, Singapore um, or, or Israel, where we're having deep networks often often helps and, and helps get a bit of that. Um, informational arbitrage um, around around kind of finding uh, good companies that you might want to partner with, um, uh, kind of with, with a bit of a lower competition. Another thing I've seen uh, work, and this kind of requires a bit of an experimental mindset, is having the uh, desire to pilot innovations from other industries. Let me give you an example. I worked with a pharma company. Uh, that looked at psoriasis and flare-ups, uh, and they recognized that stress is very important uh, for, for flare-ups, but flare-ups are very unpredictable. You go to bed, you have healthy skin, you wake up, you have a big flare-up, um, and you kind of don't know what caused it. And, and our project was like, hey, can we figure out, is there a way of predicting uh, flare-up before it happens? Um, I went and I engaged my network, and you know, I couldn't find any technology like that in the digital health or in the pharma space, but when I started looking into cybersecurity, I found a whole set of companies that looked at voice tracking. Uh, and they used voice tracking to look at things like uh, fraudulent transaction, tracking terrorists, for example. And I thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we get a bunch of patients, uh, take uh, these, some of these companies, run a few pilots where patients record their voice, and let's see what we see. I mean, talk about digital biomarkers. I mean, the voice is an exploding space and in, in pharma right now around digital biomarkers. So we actually, we did that. But the point there is that we were able to go and, and do a bit of kind of an innovation playground experimentation. And that did require a bit of a, a mind shift uh, change from some of the, the senior executives. Uh, we had tremendous success. There's a paper that's coming out, kind of publishing what, what we found. But yeah, so short answer is traditional sources like conferences, uh, like scientific reviews, non-traditional sources where you can get an, a bit of an informational edge 
beyond kind of database assets, and then looking at other industries to see what other deep technologies exist there that can help you solve the problem that you have uh, today. Well, that's fascinating. And, you know, on this topic of innovation, we know it has benefits for the organization, but what's in it for the individual driving it? How have you seen innovation support people's careers? Yeah, and so, so 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that question. I mean, maybe just want to take a step back, and and you know, I do want to identify that across all my clients, there's kind of a common theme, a uh, common trait, if, if if you will, kind of for for, for all the execs that I work with, um, and and that common trait is courage, right? Um, they we talked a little bit about the, kind of the frustration, the desire to want to change. But, but these are folks that are courageous. They, they want to make, make an impact. And, and often that does get rewarded. Um, um, many of my clients, once we launch these initiatives, we launch pilots, we, we're, we're successful, um, either get an increase in scope of, of the role. So kind of the traditional corporate either promotion or uh, they get into a different department, they get more resources to kind of scale up the innovation uh, efforts and, and they get a, a seat at the strategic table, right? Because we help them figure out um, what's next. What are the areas that are coming around the corner for the next two to five years that might either disrupt their business or uh, kind of uh, offer a growth opportunity? Uh, so, you know, having that knowledge and knowing how to operationalize some of those areas is, is, is important. So they typically get a, a seat at the table. We have some projects where you know, the, the, the project was a success. We ran a pilot, we identified, we knew the answer. Uh, we actually operationalized it, but it just didn't take off. Um, I would say about 80% of those executives ended up leaving the organization, right? And finding another company where oftentimes it was maybe a smaller company uh, where they were somewhat more nimble uh, and where they kind of, they felt that they can make a, a more serious impact. So I've seen kind of things go both ways. For people who are looking to do innovative projects or try something new, they're often faced with a risk of failure. A lot of internal stakeholders might say, we've never done this. Um, We've seen it done in another place. It didn't work out. How can somebody convince them or what are ways that they can de-risk the uh, innovative endeavor? How can they uh, gain the trust of people as much as they can? think that there needs to be recognition that this is risky, right? I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it in innovation, especially impactful innovation that goes beyond innovation theater and a bunch of kind of workshops and hand-waving. Um, it is risky. I mean, if you want something that's the risk, then you probably want to go and work in accounting. Um, but having said that, there are ways uh, that corporate innovators can think about uh, de-risking, typically starting small, um, typically kind of taking kind of the whole crawl, walk, run process where let's say we identify an opportunity there, we want to, uh, we want to kind of operationalize, not going and investing a hundred million dollars in creating a new department, but Hey, let's find a company that we can partner with and run a small scale three month pilot. Uh, that tends to work quite nicely. And, and once those pilots are successful and remember a lot of these initiatives there are no internal corporate processes for them, right? You're working with a pharma company, pharma knows how to develop drugs. And that's that's the kind of lens of of, of everything. When you talk about things like digital innovation, like let's build a digital twin or blockchain technology, uh, it's it's a new process that's not uh, not there yet. So you're both 
experimenting with with the the content of of, of the opportunity and and the companies in parallel you're building a process as well so you are really changing and, and impacting the organization um, so that is risky uh, but i would say start small figure out you know what can be done in three months with fifty thousand dollar budget you know you don't need hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of, of upfront investments make that your use case and then you can build a broader uh, business case that might require more uh, resources but be nimble uh, kind of use a bit of a SWAT team approach uh, and, and kind of a bit more of an iterative uh, approach, I would say, versus a linear approach. So that's uh, some of the things I've seen work in the corporate environment. Do you think that innovation is, is for everyone? Like, does it take a special type of person to really drive innovation in these organizations? So I think, I think innovation is for everyone. I just think that, um, first of all, I, I think, you know, you need to to want to change right i mean when i get uh, in conversations with with clients with potential clients i very quickly sense is this an individual that is okay with the status quo and you know everything is fine and and everything you know we, we actually don't have any big challenges or obstacles uh but the people that i typically work with are the ones that look this is broken this is not working i'm seeing what's happening around the world we're so slow we need to change there's a burning platform so you need a desire to change you need some sort of kind of perturbation to, to feel a bit, a bit uncomfortable to, to want to innovate. Um, you need to be curious and to say, hey, you know, so we want to do this. What's out there? Um, I, we just talk about uh, cross industry pilots. Like, is there anything in cyber? Is there anything in fintech? Is there anything in digital health that we can maybe leverage? There's an intense level of, of curiosity. Um, at the same time, you know, you, you need to kind of also acknowledge that once you embark on this journey, it is going to be initially an uphill battle because, like I said, corporate innovation is hard. Um, so you kind of need to go into this with, with, with eyes wide, wide open, I would say. So in just the last year, we've seen a lot of interest and focus in pharma companies developing omnichannel. And just from your experience, what are the pitfalls you've seen in this? Yeah, no, it's interesting that you use the word focus, right? Because, uh, you know, I come to the world of, of, of strategy where... You kind of, you know, you segment the market, you figure out who the target customer, user, consumer is, whatever. And, and then you figure out what's the channel that we want to kind of engage them uh, through. Uh, and so kind of omni-channel in a sense, uh, you know, the challenge there is that sometimes uh, I've seen companies uh, lose focus, right? They want to be in all the channels all the time. They kind of take their investments and kind of divvy it up across channels. Uh, and, and, and that's a challenge because sometimes your target customer, the person you want to reach is disproportionately focused on a single channel. Uh, there also needs to be recognizing that kind of recognition that um, there's cross-channel overlap as well. So, you know, just saying, for example, we spend X amount of dollars in channel A and look at the ROI um, is, is a bit fuzzy because the money you spend in a certain channel, maybe the person went on your website and then they downloaded something, then they went on your LinkedIn and then came back. So it's, it's very fuzzy. Um, so, so I think there, there, there's a challenge with tracking um, and, and where some of these multi-channel initiatives I've seen fail is, is because I would say there was a bit of a lack of credible business metrics. I think 
to be successful, you need to quantify your impact at that CEO and CFO level. You need to kind of be able to have a conversation that says, look, we spend $500,000 on, on this initiative. It drove this much revenues. Um, and by the way, that's a better way of spending 500K than other um, initiatives. So let's scale that up. You need to have that kind of level of business conversation with growth rates, uh, with, with some real business metrics. And, and oftentimes that's where some of these initiatives uh, fall down and they become more of a cost center uh, versus, uh, versus kind of a revenue or a growth generator. So with all this interest in um, omni-channel, we're starting to see companies developing their own omni-channel departments. And if you were to spearhead the creation of, of this type of department, what processes would you go through to ensure that, that, that you would have success? I thought about this and, and sometimes, and I'm of two minds here because sometimes I challenge the entire concept of creating an omni-channel department. Uh, it, it's kind of like this concept of creating an innovation lab or creating an innovation department. A lot of the successful innovations I've seen did not come from innovation labs or, or innovation departments. It actually came from the business. So uh, I'm always kind of struggling with that. Do we need a separate department for this capability or is it nestled within the business? But let's put that aside for now. I mean, I think that um, let's say we set up a, a department, kind of what, what are some of the key success factors there? I think first thing is figuring out what are these business metrics um, and, and what do our internal customers care about and how do we reposition us from a potential cost center to kind of a growth engine. Uh, and there's some good innovations around being able to track ROI of content and, and, and that good thing, but settle on, on kind of the, the business metrics. I then would spend uh, some time with the analytics. So figure out what are the channels that we want to disproportionately um, invest in, what's the potential, as I mentioned, kind of for cross-channel uh, talk or conversions. Um, I'd also set up a mechanism. Uh, this comes from my world of innovation and pilots and experimentation, kind of a mechanism by which you can test the effectiveness of, of the strategy. So don't pressure yourself to, to think, look, we need to have everything known and here's exactly our marketing plan or, 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 or allocation. Uh, I think you need to test things, right? Whether it's A-B testing, but at scale to figure out uh, where you wanna kind of allocate your capital to. I think there's also a conversation around channels. Uh, so I think it'd be good to keep in mind both the traditional set of channels where our uh, customers are today, but also uh, kind of where are they going to be tomorrow? And, and maybe if they're not there today, can we drive them to that channel? So think of uh, areas like Clubhouse, for example. Um, I do have a client now that's kind of uh, asking us to look at the metaverse and can they use the metaverse in, in, uh, in kind of various interesting ways, whether it's medical affairs or omni channels. Um, it's, like I said, it's not here yet, but better believe that three to five years from now, if you're not on those kind of areas. So that's kind of where, where, where things are, are moving to. So just being open-minded to the fact that let's focus on the traditional channels, but let's also maybe have some budget allocated to play and experiment in nascent and emerging channels uh, where we think the future, future is going. Um, I also think that I would focus on, on content. I think the days of static content and, and you know, here's a PDF of our publication, uh, they're, they're dying. Um, I would kind of explore how you can present content in a more engaging, a more interactive um, way. I have clients now that are building modular 
uh, content. For example, you have a publication and rather than uh, email a PDF to, 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 your, to the physicians, uh, there's actually a site where, where the author of that publication gives a short video. Uh, it's visual, it's engaging. You can look at the data in multiple cuts in multiple uh, ways. We're trying to see if we can actually get maybe the reviewer of the paper to kind of put a video, one of the study participants. I mean, you, you can just get so creative and, 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 and just present the content in a, in, in a unique way. So just kind of to, to sum it up, just figure out the business metrics, get close to the analytics, like really, really close, uh, kind of figure out what channels uh, you want to prioritize both, both kind of today and in the future and, and kind of be creative with, with presenting the content and just don't, don't be kind of a me too player, uh, like all your other competitors, uh, just think of how to shake things up a little bit. So as these companies start to build these departments and they're slowly building the internal capabilities to support omni-channel, What's the best way to leverage uh, third-party agencies? I think that just the nature of these agencies and the benefits of the agencies is that we seem across multiple clients. Um, we're, we're kind of at the edge of, of, of our industry. Um, and, and I think that that's very powerful. Um, um, just for me personally, uh, as, as in, at Blackletter, like we're less interested in operational uh, projects. We're... The bread and butter of what we do is, is more strategic. So, and I think that leveraging agencies for that, uh, what's happening, what are other companies doing, um, where are the gaps, where can we get creative? I think that can earn clients uh, a strategic seat at the table uh, beyond just focusing on, on let's say, SEO or, or operational uh, kind of um, areas. So, you know, I would kind of use an agency to, to help both expand on, on, on what's possible uh, but also kind of bring it down to earth uh, by, by piloting uh, maybe some of the more riskier channels that we talked about, uh, figure things out where things are going, uh, and just bring a bit more creativity and innovative approaches uh, to, to kind of the table. And just lastly, we, we love that word uh, corporate pirate because it's something that we, it's very easy to recognize. You often see that they're the people who talk to legal the most, the people who talk to regulatory the most. Um, trying to drive these projects forward. Do you have any advice just in terms of how to keep the uh, passion alive in terms of how do you, uh, basically, how do you drive innovation when you're constantly being brought down? Is this something that you have to first identify, perhaps I'm in the wrong environment, maybe I need to change jobs, or are there practical things that can kind of help you get through and find smaller ways to do innovation? I think just you, you need to kind of just understand that there is hope, right? Uh, corporate innovation is difficult, but people have done it. People have done it extremely successfully. So there's ways of, of doing it. So you're not kind of stuck. Uh, and there are the right ways, or there's the wrong ways uh, of doing it. So, so there is a sense of, of hope and that this is not impossible and this can, uh, can be done. Um, I, I, I think that it's funny you mentioned legal and regulatory, some of the successful in, in innovations that I've kind of been a part of, they actually bring those folks way early in the conversation because a lot of innovations fail when, hey, look, we, we did this, we ran a pilot, and then we go to legal and regulatory. And, you know, their job is kind of, to, <laughs> I don't want to say their job is to say no, but uh, they're kind of the immune system of, of the the pharma company, right? I mean, by design. So anything that foreign comes, uh, they kind of, they might feel uncomfortable with. So you need to bring them along way, way earlier on. 
uh, in the in in the conversation. So know which people kind of uh, to engage, uh, and I would say start small. Uh, start, uh, you know, you don't need to commission a half a million dollar project uh, and, and kind of go big, like figure out what are some of the growth areas that you're passionate about in the industry? Is it a, a digital twin? Is it a digital biomarkers? Like what are some of your hypotheses where you feel that there's growth um, and, and then figure out, you know, how can we structure something that's small, that's nimble to, to learn a little bit about it? Um, and, and, and then to figure out how do we operationalize this with, with a partner, with a pilot uh, company, a startup. Um, but, but yeah, start, start small. Like it's, it's kind of look, looking at a huge mountain in front of you, kind of start walking up it uh, slow and, and know that there, there is a peak and the people have, have both uh, reached it and come down successfully. Awesome. I think that's uh, going to be great advice for some of the people that we recognize as uh, bright thinkers. Sometimes they can get down just based on some of the barriers, but I think those are really good practical things to uh, keep in mind. So uh, with that, we'd like to thank you again for joining. We'd love to have you back. We'd love to be back and hope this was helpful. Yes, definitely. Thank you. Thanks, great, Myron. Thank you so much. Pleasure. We hope you enjoyed our episode with Dr. Myron Durchansky from Blackletter Group. Blackletter helps life science executives identify and operationalize innovation at the intersection of digital and pharma. This involves a deep assessment of nascent opportunity spaces from a scientific and commercial perspective, scouting for technologies in highly innovative ecosystems like Singapore and Israel, setting up small-scale experiments and pilots as a tangible first step in executing innovation within a larger corporate structure. If you'd like to get in touch with Dr. Myron Durchansky, you can find him on LinkedIn or via the Black Letter website at blackletter.group. Thanks for listening.